Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, tonight, however, we are celebrating Look Alive Out There by Sloan Crosley. Sloan Crosley is the author of I Was Told There'd Be Cake, a finalist for the Thurber Prize for American Humor, and How Did You Get This Number, both New York Times bestsellers. Her debut novel, The Clasp, was a national bestseller and has been optioned for film by Universal Pictures. She's a contributing editor at Vanity Fair and Interview Magazine. She currently lives in Manhattan. Critics have hailed her as the literary descendant of Nora Ephron, David Sedaris, Joseph Mitchell, and Dorothy Parker. Yet her distinct voice is tailor-made for contemporary snafus, large and small. Steve Martin described her writing in Look Alive Out There as achieving the impossible. She stays consistently funny and delivers a book that is alive and jumping. We're delighted to have her here tonight to read and discuss Look Alive Out There. Please help me welcome Sloan Crosley. Thank you. That was a very... I'm sure I'm supposed to get this way. That was a very lovely introduction. Thank you. I don't know how all those people would have sex with each other so that I could be their descendant, but it's fun to imagine. Um, so thank you all so much for coming tonight. I appreciate it. And um, I ran into my friend Sarah, um, who's back there. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, just before this event. And um, I usually read, I've been reading two smaller essays, so I'll read for about 15 minutes and then we can do a Q&A because the longer essays are way, way too long to read to any of you guys. You have to get home. Um, and I asked her if she would rather hear one about a rude woman in a wheelchair or a dog with a neurological condition. So if you don't like this, it's not my fault. <laughs> okay, so this is the first one. The Chupacabra. Ooh, excuse me. Locals in Vermont have spotted an animal that they believe to be a chupacabra, a mythical South American creature said to feed on the blood of goats. Witnesses have seen it wandering through farms and graveyards, its skin blistered, its eyes possessed. While the chances of it being a rabid dog are good, no one is ruling anything out. So a magazine sends me up north to see if I can find it. I am a less than ideal candidate for the job, I don't specialize in mythical creature hunting or even run-of-the-mill hunting. But the unspoken point of the enterprise is not to find the chupacabra, but to find myself instead, to make a larger point about the power of the imagination, to discover a tick on my shin after traipsing through the woods. Won't that be fun? I spend two unfruitful days stalking animals that turn out to be deer, or in one case, a rusted car. At the end of the second day, I return to my roadside motel and collapse onto my bed face first. Having covered what feels like most of southern Vermont on foot, I limp over to a black binder on the coffee table. Inside is a series of laminated advertisements for pizzerias and diners, tourist attractions, and kid-friendly activities. But on the last page, there's a small square Printed in comic sans, is there any other kind? Sans, sans, whatever, that one. <laughs> Inside the square is the word relax and a number for Fran, a 24-hour masseuse. 
it's hard to reconcile the childlike font with the adult-like 24-hour masseuse. But I decide to give it a shot, reasoning that I can always leave if it turns out that Fran and I are on different wavelengths. I call the number. She's just had a cancellation. So I drive to the address listed in the ad, which, as it turns out, is her house. A slight, cheerful woman in an apron answers the door. When I guess her name, she corrects me. She's Fran's housekeeper finishing up for the day. She escorts me to a paisley love seat in the living room where I can wait for Fran. The room is wood paneled with wall-to-wall carpeting and shelves that sag with the weight of self-help books. A large flat screen TV is showing a reality television series I'm way too old to recognize. A geriatric Maltese by the name of Chartreuse, according to her collar, pants at my feet. Chartreuse is afflicted with an excessively crooked neck, which the housekeeper informs me is the result of one too many seizures. The white fur around her eyes is stained with years of gook so that her eyes resemble quotation marks, like she's only sarcastically a dog. She moves back and forth across the room like an inquisitive puppet. After several commercial breaks, Fran emerges in pink slippers, a pink muumuu, and pink latex gloves. How's your evening, she asks by way of a hello. She invites me to follow her so that we can select some invigorating oils together. The housekeeper takes my place on the sofa, intently watching a young woman on TV, wearing a microphone bigger than her bikini, ease into a hot tub. The woman announces that the hot tub is hot. (laughs) I trail Fran down the hallway to the massage room, quickly adding up all the people who know where I am. (laughs) Fran instructs me to get undressed and shuts the door, leaving me alone. The room is lined with china figurines inspired by the major motion picture Misery. I lie down, pulling the sheet back, adjusting my head in the massage table's head donut. Fran enters the room, lowers the lights, and douses me with enough oil to alert the EPA. Then she gets to work. Within seconds, I know this will be the best massage I have ever had. Fran's pressure is perfect, her fingers homing in on muscles in need. She cleans the knots out from beneath my shoulder blade as if she were sweeping leaves from a gutter. I begin to drift off, thinking of the elusive chupacabra, thinking the solipsistic thought that there's not much of a difference between no one finding it and it never existing. I am brought back to consciousness by the sound of heavy panting. I open my eyes to see that not only has Chartreuse meandered into the room, but she has settled herself into my field of vision. (laughs) Fran must have left the door open a crack. Hi, I mouth. Chartreuse pants while I stare, unblinking into her eyes. You're not supposed to stare animals directly in the eye for a prolonged period of time, but what's she going to do to me from all the way down there? She proceeds to have a full seizure as I look down, (laughs) my cheeks crammed into the headrest. Her body shakes, her ears go in different directions. I am totally unclear of the etiquette here. (laughs) Fran says nothing as Chartreuse keels to her side and shakes, her limbs going stiff. It looks like she's trying and failing to break dance. (laughs) Still, Fran says nothing. She moves methodically down my my spine as if nothing is happening because for her, nothing is. She sees this kind of thing all the time. But me, I don't move a muscle because I have never seen anything like it. That's number one. Thanks. Thank you.
Um, this one is slightly longer, though not much. Basically, the way the book is structured, which I should have said in advance, is there are um, 16 essays, and there are sort of little baby ones that are thematically connected to the ones that follow them, but hopefully they stand okay on their own. Um, this one is called Our Hour is Up. I somehow make it to the fourth grade without ever seeing the Peanuts comic strip. So I don't know that I'm imitating Lucy when I put signs up all over my elementary school advertising my services as a therapist. In puffy paint and magic marker, I inform my peers that every Tuesday I will station myself on the large rock that dominates the northwest quadrant of the playground, and anyone who likes can come and ask me for advice. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why Tuesdays? <laughs> <laughs> Because Monday is too loaded, Friday is not loaded enough, Thursday is charged with anticipation for Friday, and Tuesday is essentially a less popular version of Wednesday. <laughs> and less popular is exactly where I belong. There are kids who go through elementary school having no friends whatsoever. But between parent and teacher pressure for harmony, this is actually tough to manage. It generally requires hygiene issues or the regular cutting of one's own bangs. I am the kid just above that rung the one with a handful of friends. Scraped together, there are just enough of them, of them for me to suspect that if they have sought my nine-year-old wisdom at bowling parties, perhaps I can be of use to the population at large. Because I have the brain of a small child, it does not occur to me to charge for this service. The Monday before I open this not-for-profit juggernaut, I am pulled out of class by the principal. This is beyond shocking to everyone, including the teacher, including me. At this point in my life, my greatest infraction has been forgetting my recorder on a school bus. My heart races as I try to imagine what I possibly could have done. It seems I did not have permission to tape up posters all over the place, and if I had asked, I would have been informed that the entire school had just been freshly repainted. Now there are bits of colored construction paper permanently embedded in the walls. It will be years before I do the calculus on how much it costs to repaint an entire public school or where that money comes from. For now, it doesn't seem like a very big deal. Perhaps the principal should bore someone else with her list of chores. I apologize, but my real concern is that my therapeutic practice is getting off to an inauspicious start. The good news is that word has spread that I was pulled out of class and why. This is the moment in which I learn that all publicity is good publicity. <laughs> on Tuesday, when the lunch bell rings, I march past the tire swings and the monkey bars and climb up onto the rock like a Buddha in a jean jacket. <laughs> At first, business is slow. It's just me and my best pal chatting. She is the human equivalent of the pianist's own money in the tip jar. But soon enough, people we don't know as well come around, and she excuses herself to apply stickers to her backpack. During my first recess, I have four customers. Their problems stem mostly from one another. One day, licensed therapists will tell them that their problems stem mostly from their parents, but that day has not yet come. For now, it's all Susie is mean to me and Danny stole my gummy bears. There's a fifth customer at the end of the hour, but he only asked me a question about the dearth of strawberry milk in the cafeteria. I can't decide if he doesn't understand what I'm doing here, or I don't. A few Tuesdays into this enterprise, Jason Pekarinen leaves the enclosure around the basketball court and saunters up the concrete path that leads to my rock. I think he will turn off at any minute because Jason Pekarinen couldn't possibly be coming to talk to me. 
I am not disgusted by boys like some of my friends. I am, in fact, madly in love with Jason Pekarinen. His mother and my mother are quite friendly, but this has never stopped him from pretending I don't exist. The fact that Jason Pekarinen even has a mother is bewildering to me. What does one make a perfect boy for dinner? How does one tell him what to do? What does he dream of at night? This is really happening. Jason Pekarinen is headed straight toward me. My clientele is expanding in marvelous directions. <laughs> yeah, Jason Pekarinen begins. This speaks to the intimate secrets he's about to reveal. He greets me as if we've been conversing for hours. Yeah, I have a problem, he says. Dear God, I think, is he prepared a speech? <laughs> yes, I ask, fluttering my nascent eyelashes. How can I help you, Jason? Yeah, there's this really annoying girl giving advice on a rock. <laughs> to his credit, this is a pretty sick burn for a fourth grader. <laughs> I make a mask of my face as if unaffected, even though I am desperate to dispose of my own body. What do you think I should do about it? He asks, roundhouse kicking my feelings. <laughs> Shut up, I tell him. I mean it as a jab, but it comes out as more of a guess. Shut up and boner occupy the deepest crevices of my insult bag. I have to dust them off before deploying them. Jason Pekarinen laughs, cackles, really, and walks away. I watch him intently to see if he's returning to his friends. Much to my relief, he's headed for the boys' room. Alas, this means my humiliation was but an errand for him. He had to pee the entire time. <laughs> Twenty years later, and I am standing behind a police barricade on Fifth Avenue because it's the gay pride parade and all parades are awful on a molecular level, even ones for clean air and kittens, I don't care. <laughs> I am with my boyfriend and we are waiting for our turn to cross the street. We've been standing here for so long, I can't remember a time before we were standing here. There's so much cheering and stimulation that it takes an adult Jason Pekarin in several attempts at calling my name before I hear it. I turn around to see that he too is waiting to cross the street. Because of social media and life in general, I recognize him as instantly as he recognizes me. He's wearing fancy spandex and leaning on a sleek bicycle that looks like a paperclip that fell from heaven. <laughs> if there were any justice in this world, Jason Pekarinen would be drinking in an Applebee's in the, middle of his, in the middle of the day with his ass crack showing. But there is no justice in this world. Jason Pekarinen went on to be well-liked throughout high school and graduated from Stanford and a bunch of other schools and is currently a physicist in London. <laughs> Who let him back into the country? We embrace, because apparently being an adult is about the same thing as being in fourth grade, embracing your sworn enemy. I admonish myself for being flattered that Jason Pekarinen is so happy to see me. I introduce him to my boyfriend and they chat about total nonsense, like the pros and cons of dropping off one's laundry. I am gobsmacked by how they can have such a dull conversation, as if the universe didn't just collapse in on itself. But it does make me happy to imagine a little girl, such as myself, wondering what my boyfriend ate for dinner when he was a child, knowing that he was not a cruel kid. When a cop moves the, bar the barricade aside, we all hustle through together. Jason Pekarinen tells us all about his life, about how wonderful London is, and how he's just gut renovated a house for himself. His wife, a pickle, himself and his wife, a pickle monger, who's pregnant with twins. 
They're mine, he says, making a clever joke. I tell him about the novel I just bought, holding up the bag as proof, as if purchasing a novel trumps everything he has just said. My boyfriend, who never knew Jason Pekarin in The Boy God, looks at me like I've been drinking. At the end of the block, I assume Jason Pekarin and his bike will cut into the park, but he keeps following us, wheeling and talking. I'm so glad I ran into you, he says. Again, I try not to be flattered. Finally, as we reach another corner, he shows his cards. His mother heard from my mother that I used to work at a publishing house. This is true, I tell him. Well, my wife is putting together a book proposal, he says. On pickle-mongering, asks my boyfriend. She's really popular in the UK, explains Jason Pekarinen. I wonder if I can ask you to take a look at the book proposal. I worked in publicity, I explain. I didn't really see proposals. I've seen hundreds upon hundreds of book proposals. <laughs> oh, says Jason Pekarinen. I can tell he's about to give it another go. You don't get into Stanford by giving up that easy. <laughs> well, he says, maybe if you just had any advice for her, I'll email you. I really check it, I say. <laughs> anyway, it was so nice to bump into you. I give him a hug so brief it could pass for a breeze, grab my boyfriend, and pull him away. In my peripheral vision, I see Jason Pekarinen looking confused as if he's overstepped his bounds. And maybe he has. I don't ask people I haven't seen in 20 years for favors. I don't go up to doctors at parties and ask them to look at a weird bump on my thumb. And I certainly don't say, no, no, wait here. I want you to look at my wife's weird thumb bump. <laughs> as far as Jason Pekarinen is concerned, my advice-giving days are over. Shop's closed. But perhaps this does not justify physically running from this blast from the past as if a shard had hit me in the eye. Well, says my boyfriend, that was a little on the bitchy side. <laughs> I know it was, but I give him a dirty look for saying it first. He is undeterred, waiting for an explanation for this incongruous behavior. But what he does not realize is that it's not incongruous, it's overdue. <laughs> what he does not realize is that Jason Pekarinen is responsible for a fragment of the woman he loves. A fragment so small, no one would notice it missing but me. I look over my shoulder to make sure that Jason Pekarinen has finally disappeared. Then I ask my boyfriend who his favorite Peanuts character was and cross my fingers for the right answer. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. So I figured short and sweet so we can all chat. It's a secret intervention for one of you. You have to guess which one. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but if anyone has any questions, comments, criticisms especially, <laughs> here to take them. Hi. Okay. Um, so wait, which one is the right <laughs> Lucy. Oh, there are a lot of different ones. Woodstock's a solid option. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can also repeat this. She's just asking about the Joan Didion interview. Or oh, I'll let you finish your question first. I was like sitting there just thinking about what was your thing? I mean, why did you do it first of all? And then like, what were you thinking as you were going to do that? And like, how do you, how do you come up with that? 
Okay, so the question was, um, I, I interviewed Joan Didion a few years back on stage at the New York Public Library in front of many, many people. Um, I'm still nervous about it. <laughs> it's, it still keeps me up at night. Um, and what did I, how was my experience with it? Why did, you do Why did I do it? To talk to Joan Didion. Um, yeah, of course. I mean, I did it because I feel like it's a great honor to get to ask questions of someone who's one of your heroes and who I already knew vaguely. Um, so I knew that the concept of never meet your heroes does not apply to Joan Didion. Um, you want to do that. Um, the, it's a little difficult because... I would say there's a difference between people who don't mince words and words and people who just don't say a lot of them. Um, and she really is in the latter category and will answer yes, no to non-yes, no questions like, how are you? No. <laughs> so it's, it's very, I mean, she's just a very intimidating person, but she's also genuinely lovely. Um, and I did it because I wanted to talk to her. Probably. I love this. Okay, so basically, I mean, it's very nerve-wracking to do this. But basically, um, yeah, I talked to someone else who had talked, spoken strategy-wise, who had um, interviewed her before in San Francisco, a different author, and he said that I should have um, like flashcards, like a sort of comedian. I was going to fly through my material very, very quickly, which I did. So that was my strategy with her. But she was very, um, she's great. The only time I um, wanted to murder this national treasure that we all love so much <laughs> um, was um, I had seen the play version of uh, The Year of Magical Thinking on opening night and this is Vanessa Redgrave and before her daughter had died as well and there's a very powerful moment in the play and in the book where you know she's saying oh to her daughter it's going to be okay it's going to be okay and then she just belts out and Vanessa Redgrave is a big lady and just belts out did I lie to you you know it's not going to be okay and I asked Joan do you remember you know where you were when you first heard her perform that and she said well I wrote it and I'm like, that is, and everyone laughed. I'm like, that is not what I asked you. <laughs> but um, otherwise that, it was a tremendous honor. And she's, she's Joan Didion. Hi. They're all, yes, they're all nonfiction. Yes, they're all nonfiction. Someone asked me the reading the other night how much of a, a fictional edge I used in my nonfiction, which I'm like, I'm stealing that. That's amazing. <laughs> like, um, very little. Very little. I mean, that's a made-up name for that guy. And it was Yale, not Stanford. I'm just going to keep on telling you salient details against the, <laughs> against the advisement of lawyers. <laughs> but yes, it's very real. No, he probably won't. It's weird. There's there's a thing that happens with internship. If has he identified himself? There's a thing that happens when you um, write about people the way I do, where like 90% of it is sort of self-deprecating. Um, I sort of write a lot about strangers, and then there's few things with friends, but they're mostly tribute things. If I you know know the person or like the person, like it might say they might not be perfectly happy with the depiction, but it's like mostly saying like these people are so great, they're just different from me, um, and then occasionally there's another category where people just don't know. Like I, I described this girl in my, in How Did You Get This Number in the last book of essays um, as this like very popular girl but she was very affable and sweet and so I descri described her as more of a queen ladybug than a queen bee. And she came up to me, I know her vaguely in, in real life, in adult life. And she's like, who is that? 
<laughs> but I'm like, oh man, it's a composite. Uncle, I don't know, you know. But it would be nothing but good, you know. I mean, and then in terms of who I turned in, the essay I didn't read was about, like, talking about this really, like, horrible woman who, like, basically stole a cab from me and she was in a wheelchair. Um, well, you missed out because of Sarah. <laughs> but no, but it's, um, I don't, I mean, she, I know that it really happened, but she's not identifiable at all, so. She's going to come wheel me over with them. Okay. <laughs> it's not funny. Yeah. Hi. Hey. Um, what is your process like? Like for something like this, how many pieces do you write to really down or like or when you're less known? Okay, so the question is, what is the process like, and also to, to whittle it down, and also do I have, have a theme to bring it all together, which is sort of two. Um, you know, I don't write full, I mean, I've written like two ever full essays that, like, there were like two essays that didn't make it into this, um, just because they were more cocktail party stories, um, and they were good cocktail party stories. We'll have cocktails afterwards, but like, <laughs> but no, it's it's like um, that one was about jumping off a cliff in Australia, um, which is like that sure did happen. <laughs> cool story, bro. Yeah, I guess that's how it gets eliminated. Um, and then, um, but then in terms of uh, thematically, I kind of got away with murder because for a lot of writers, I mean, like Chuck Klosterman has music, you know, um, Candace Bushnell has sex. David Sedaris has Hugh, <laughs> I guess. I don't know, but it's, 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 I, my first collection, the theme was disappointment, allegedly. But like, what have you read in your life that's not about disappointment? I mean, like, name one thing. <laughs> like, the back of a cereal box is about disappointment. <laughs> so I think that, and then the second one had more of a travel bent to it. Um, and this one, I think, has hopefully a little more, like, I think the humor's, I don't know, I like, I mean, you like the thing you did most recently the most, usually, and so I, I like this one, but it's got a, the same sort of one-eyed cocked cynicism, but a little more hope, hence the title. Um, but yeah, I sort of now, luckily, I like, it's like I skipped over the part where I had to be like, there are all turtles in this. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just, I somehow, like, sidestepped that um, but I do think in general people want essay collections to have a theme or a platform or what have you hi uh, um, backing on that I recently saw an interview with Brandy Woods where she was asked how edited she was as a writer and she said not at all and she said <laughs> how ridiculous is editing because if an artist paints a picture, does somebody come in and say, don't give me more blue? Uh, yeah. Um, well, if you're Eve's Klein, yeah. If, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, first of all, um, Fran is actually a giant personal hero, but she also hasn't written anything in a long time, so I don't know when she was last rejecting these, these mythical edits. <laughs> um, all due respect, but I think she would agree with this fact just because it's, it's time and science. Um, but um, I am edited for... to get me closer. There's a... There's a this is like a, a little bit of a cheesy answer, but it's like my favorite quote. <laughs> Just sort of immature to have a favorite quote and a favorite color. <laughs> but it's Thelonious Monk, and it's um, the genius in the room is the one most like himself. And so I think I am edited to get closer and closer to what it is that I want to say. It's not um, so much about 
being tailored to someone else. And I think that when you are, you know, maybe if you're writing for a magazine, especially your voice gets tailored to the larger voice of that magazine. Um, but the larger voice in this case is me. So I have uh, a wonderful editor who I feel like does that. Um, it's not, it's usually one, I mean, to get technical, it's like a one editorial letter and then line notes. It's not back and forth forever. I will say he's helped me be less of like a symbol bashing monkey where like I'll just put like just a lot of low hanging fruit like pun jokes that just like come like this and it's distracting from like the heart of the essay in some ways and um, recently I wrote him I had a bit, basically, and that's the thing, it's a bit, it's like a comedy bit as opposed to something that's literary, um, about how why one of the world's great mysteries is why there's never any overhead lighting in hotel rooms, I don't know, it's just like little lamps forever, and he was like, it's just, no. <laughs> and he's like, it's just slowing this paragraph. Like, you get four in this paragraph. Like, take it out. And I wrote him, and I was like, that's the funniest thing I've ever written. What are you talking about? And he forwards me an email from six months ago where I defended a joke being like, that's the funniest thing I've ever written. <laughs> so, like, it's really, like, um, healthy to have someone who has, like, a light touch, but you also need... That sounds gross. You need to be touched. What? It's <laughs> not what I meant. But, you know... But uh, so I am edited, but lightly. Fiction more so. Hi, guys. <laughs> Hi. Hi. No, go ahead. And then they'll, they'll go afterwards. They'll wait. Yeah, the essay is a form that gets battled around a lot. It can be really intimate, and it also can be very arch. Um, and abstract. And I'm just wondering what you think if you go like that um, the, the essay gets battered around a lot and it can be either lyrical or arch and abstract and the question is whether or not what I think of the form and if I'm going to move out of it um, no I think I like it's like people you know have that dream of dividing their time between New York and LA you know I like dividing my time <laughs> between fiction and nonfiction. Um, so I don't intend on moving out of it I think it would be sort of interesting to write a longer narrative or maybe not even narrative but just nonfiction book that's not split up that doesn't have to end 16 times which is a really cynical way to think about a book of essays it's just 16 endings <laughs> um, but uh, the form itself I don't know it's not really I mean it's it's a lot older than me. It's, you know, like, I mean, narrative nonfiction essay writing is like Montaigne, and then, like, I feel like then you go to, like, I mean, I like Elizabeth Hardwick and, like, Joseph Mitchell, and I, my writing tends to be a little bit old-fashioned. Um, so, therefore, I don't feel the need to move and have it... I mean, I, the writing should evolve, but it's not like it's inappropriate for this technological age or something like that, because there's very little of that kind of... Um, that stuff in the book that's not written like that. Um, and how I think of the form in general, good. <laughs> it's good. Well, yeah, the most common vowel is I, so there's going to be an intimate nature to the, to the writing. Um, but I think that you can get that with fiction too. You can get that with like close third person. You can get that with anything. It's honestly, it's all about like whether or not you connect to the writing. Like I think that I can read someone's essay collection or essay period in general, and it has nothing to do with the form. If it's I don't connect to it, and either I'm not laughing or being educated or entertained by it in some way, then I'm gonna have a more of a personal connection to something that's entirely fictional. Does that help? Hopefully. Yeah, it's like the tradition of 
and this is a place, and it's like it's a voice, and um, and the essay I think is is something really special. Yeah. It's good. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who are writing today that are, are really excellent. I think it has sort of like, I think the essay had a rough moment for a while when it was like all, you know, young girls being paid $200 to spill like their life stories about abuse online for like, no, you know, and, and, and unartfully, which is maybe not the crime for everyone else, but was certainly the crime for me, <laughs> that it was just like, this is just um, rubbernecking. And um, and like, oh, my grandfather's ghost had sex with me. You know, it was like crazy <laughs> things. Even like the modern love column was slipping into that for a while. And I think we've actually moved past that because um, there are just so many great venues for essays and so many um, wonderful ways to get noticed and published that... I think it's in a good place now in terms of what qualifies as an essay and not just someone's diary entry. Hi. Hi. Um, how is the fiction going? And when can you write something? <laughs> oh my god, mom? <laughs> <laughs> Mother, is that you? <laughs> um, thank you. Um, uh, I don't know, uh, it's going well. I'm halfway through a novel, um, but you know, it could be, it could be, I would love to read it. When it's done. <laughs> so, have you considered like stand-up comedy at all? No. <laughs> Thank you. No, I don't have. There's a way. It's so funny. Um, there's a way. I was talking. Um, um, probably some people in this room know this person, uh, Megan Amram. Um, a lot of people. Um, I was talking to her for an interview, and I was saying that her kind of the brand of comedy that she does. Like we sort of both look at each other and we're like wow, that's really cool. Like, I could never do what she does. There's a way, there's a specific kind of shouts and murmurs humor. I know, I've tried to write shouts and murmurs. I've written two and got rejected. I know, it happens. But it's, but not, not for, it was a long time ago, but still, it was enough to burn me. But no, I just, I don't, um, that, that sort of like, like a t-shirt gun, you know, that's like endless like that. And in a way, I was just answering the question, like I've weeded some of that out of, mine's more storytelling. And there are amazing comics that do stand up like storytelling, but I don't think, I don't know if I want to do that. Because at least I can, here I can hide behind the fact that it's a book. I can physically hide behind this podium. Seriously. And then, and then I can also hide behind the sort of larger point in, that I'm trying to make with any of these essays. Um, you know, there's an essay about, you know, egg freezing and an essay about climbing an active volcano, and I don't know if those would make good stand up bits. But if I strip those away, I just have to be funny. And no, thank you. <laughs> Hi. Uh, kind of a two parter, so is there any update about, I was told there would be a theory, and do you have any desire to ever write screenplays? All that stuff. Um, well, I mean, this is when in Rome, right? <laughs> like, um, so Cake was optioned by HBO, and it got like pretty far, I think, but then they decided not to make it, which is like normal. Um, and then, and then um, yeah, I have a couple of pilots I'm working on, um, and then I also wrote the screenplay for The Clasp, and I, I mean, I enjoy dialogue. I enjoy writing dialogue. It ends up being the kicker to a lot of the essays. I think it's like pretty apparent. Um, but 
I will say it's it's so funny. It's like a natural thing that we've come to expect, like from Fitzgerald on. Although that's maybe not the most shiny example, but um, that you know, okay, you come to Hollywood and like you know, transfer what you did. But it feels as weird as like I'm just going to rewrite this, but it's like in iambic pentameter and like <laughs> poems. You'll love it. <laughs> I totally know what I'm doing. <laughs> um, so there's a bit of faking it that goes on, but it is also really really fun. So yes, I'm working on that. Do you have any dream casting for yourself? No. <laughs> no, I do not. Elliot Gould. Hi. <laughs> uh, has, your, um, has your view on psychics changed after the I'm really enjoying this like national group therapy tour. It's really, really healthy for me. The question was, has my view on psychics changed? For those who have not read the book, um, the last essay is sort of a big essay, and it was true of the former books, too. I kind of like this, like, build-up for this, like, blood-on-the-field emotional one that I just, like, sense the book is closing, and I'm not going to get this chance until I finish another book, which is going to be, like, Haley's Comet, you know? So, um... The last essay is about, you know, fertility and freezing my eggs and the pressure to be a mom and more actually those conversations, like the pressure to have those conversations and how um, funny and irritating they can sometimes be. But I started off with going to see a psychic after I, like, basically, oh my gosh, I set a postcard on fire of a famous thing and by accident and a picture of um, the famous thing was on the postcard and then the next day in the cover of the newspaper it turns out that a warehouse fire in London had actually burned it to the ground and I was like, okay. <laughs> like, I'm a witch. <laughs> and, and I need to tap my powers. And so I went to see um, an intuitor who was, I think, a little bit up from a psychic. Um, but, you know, same deal. Um, and he told me I would have many children, and that's sort of what launches into the, the rest of the essay. So that's for those who don't know. Um, and my opinion on psychics has not changed, even though he was right um, numerically. But my opinion was never bad. It was simply that I think they're telling you a lot of what you already know. I'm not saying they're fraudulent. I'm just saying I don't think you're getting anything out of it except for the party trick. You know, like if I looked at you and was like, oh, you know, I'm sorry you just lost your job, but at least you got that new apartment. And I was right. Like, that's so cool, but okay. Doesn't stop you from losing the job or getting the new apartment. Like, they're not going to, yeah, so... Are you psychic? <laughs> is that what this is coming from? <laughs> Did you know I was going to answer that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hi. So I have more than one Jared story that's very similar to yours. I'm sorry. Yeah. And I'm really going, God, this is my life. And I was wondering how you managed to live in that place for so I mean, what's really bad is it's an essay about my noisy neighbors, um, and what's really bad is that that is probably the most fictional essay in the book, but only for one reason, which is that it's in the past tense. I still live there. Okay, so let me just say, I moved out of the recently into my sister's house and made my sister's nephew move his toys out of his toy room so I could live in his toy room because I was... Because it's away from the noise? Yeah. And I'm I'm in heaven right now because I can sleep. Because you're sleeping in a ball pit. <laughs> yeah, that makes total sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, uh, he graduated. I mean, there's this guy who's a. Uh, she graduated too. 
Wow, you really, it got in. It's funny, the other, I'm, I like how like I get to like tell everybody like what's true and what's not in the book. The other thing that's not true is that, so this kid who is this, uh, a holy terror in Manhattan, I have a normal apartment, but I look out onto a um, six-story, they add an extra story because <laughs> um, brownstone, I'm like, oh, zoning, schmoning. <laughs> um, uh, this huge single family on brownstone and these kids like at this my relationship with these kids that have like sick great taste in music I'm like damn it but I'm like shazamming it for my living room you know mm. um, so it doesn't really matter what you're playing at three in the morning on a Tuesday when you start at three in the morning on a Tuesday but his name it's so easy to change all the names it's really like a fun thing like I had a mean boss and another essay collection and I just called her Ursula you know it's like easy like like associative things but his name is so imprinted like the sound of his friends calling his name and his mother calling his name it was like the I tried I like fought with the lawyer and he's like no and I'm like please I'm, I'm not telling you his real name but I will tell you why I thought to myself it has to be Jewish for the story and I was like what is the name of a bratty Jewish kid that everyone hates and Jared just seemed really subliminally to work and I do believe that like why it's bothering people so much it's a little like the Coca-Cola and the gods must be crazy you know I don't know if you're getting that reference sorry but basically like it's just it's a little subliminal messaging but you know it's okay he'll be fine he'll grow up and have all sorts of sadness in his life <laughs> Couple more. You can sign books. Hi. Um, the question: How do I not? Um, it's probably deceptively simple in some ways. Um, hopefully. It's hard to answer that only not because it's not a good question, only because there's sort of like, sort of this like egomaniacal thing embedded in it where it's like oh, this whole thing, you know. I mean, I don't know, I don't like, but it's just I, I know what you mean though, and I think that it's it's a naturally how I write um, and how I think. I tend to think in analogies. Um, I don't actually know the total answer to the question. Um, I think that, and again, it's it's. Um, I mean, I think the trick is, again, to just sort of find your voice and not pretend to be like anyone else. Like, when I'm writing, I genuinely don't read a lot of humor. And I love humor. I mean, everyone knows David Sedaris. If you don't know David Rockoff, you should explore that. Um, but I, and actually, if you ask, like, anyone who does what I do vaguely, what they're reading... It's usually like like a like a giant history of the Holocaust. Like it's usually like a giant like it's it's usually something awful or it's about birding, or it'll just be about something that's so. It's usually just because I feel like there is something so personality filled about narrative nonfiction writing that it can be infiltrating a little bit to read someone else's stuff. So like I don't like finish one of these and think like what would Nora do? I just think that every day, all the time, but not when I'm writing. <laughs> if that makes sense. I think I organized like it's the question was about the different types of writing. Um, I think that like I wish it was more in the positive, but it's sort of in the negative. Like I'm just like so 
you get so sick of nonfiction and the uh, being so incredibly beholden to just either what you know, the events that happen to you personally, or the research that you can possibly do, and you're just like, oh, I just, I want to fly. Um, and then I, and then fiction, and then all of a sudden you're like saddled with a tremendous amount of responsibility. And like anyone who's written both will really tell you. I mean it. Fiction writers will often say they don't want to write fiction because it seems so, like something like this because um, it seems so exposing to them, but not because it's actually more technically difficult. And I think fiction writing is actually technically, I mean, as much as I'm not trying to say that this just like, I didn't just like poop this out of the prom, you know? I'm sorry. <laughs> but, like, but, but it's... It is, it is more challenging, um, and, but then of course you have the responsibility, everything is your fault. Every move you make, every piece of plot, every character name, everything. There's no such thing anymore as like, I was nine, I don't remember. Too bad, it's fiction, <laughs> you make it up. Um, and so that's so exciting, and then you just want to come back to a different set. It's almost like a different set of gods, like you're sort of loyal to the story in one, and the other one you're loyal to trying to make things as entertaining as possible while making it as close to the truth and your memory of it as possible. So I think you just, for me, I just get sick of one or the other, and then the whole house gets clean. <laughs> yeah. Second, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I think sh sh is this a time? I don't know what. The I have no sense of time and space. Should we sign things? Can we sign? Okay. I mean, you guys can sign things. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Should I go? You'll sign. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by. And we hope to see you soon.